The Tom Woods Show, episode 1499. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I have the best, nicest, smartest, brightest group of like-minded, friendly folks you can possibly imagine where we learn from each other, we get outraged with each other, we rejoice with each other. It's a wonderful community of folks, and you, as a loyal listener of The Tom Woods Show, belong inside it. It's called The Tom Woods Show Elite, and you can get in there via supportinglisteners.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Paul Gottfried is back with us today. Paul is an important figure in the conservative world outside of Conservatism Incorporated. He's the author of many important books, He's a Yale PhD, a Guggenheim recipient, a professor emeritus at Elizabethtown College, disliked by all the right people, but a very, very smart scholarly figure. And I just wanted to talk to him because I haven't really done this before about his story. I've done this with uh, several people who have been frequent guests and just go through and talk about their stories and evolution and see what, what we can pluck from that. So Paul, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me again. (laughs) I've had a number of episodes, I told you, where I've taken a guest I've had on multiple times and just gone back in time and reconstructed that person's intellectual development. And even though there are, well, there's never any shortage of things you and I could discuss from the headlines, I thought today that's what I wanted to do. Now, you have a PhD from Yale, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the second best university in America. So right, you want the best. <laughs> of course. But I, I want to know um, about the young Paul Gottfried. First of all, are you one of these people who has a story to tell us of moving from the left to the right or anything like that? Or how did you start off? Who were you in the beginning? Well, you know, if, if you want to look at my political development, there was only a period of about maybe six weeks when I was in my teens when I came to regard myself as a Marxist, I don't know why I, I thought that, you know, there, there should not be any laboring class. We should all be able, you know, to divide up um, income equally or something like this. But it only lasted about six weeks. And I think what, what left me disillusioned was visiting New York City and seeing an exhibit put up by the Soviet Union on technological advances under communism and I thought the people who were there were probably, you know, dressed well by uh, by Stalinist standards, looked absolutely shabby. And the stuff that they were showing, you know, washing machines and electrical equipment, uh, sort of looked like the stuff that my grandparents would have thrown away. And uh, after watching this, I went back to being, I suppose, a conservative Republican. Uh, I think I was a Republican even while I was a Marxist during the, the period of six weeks. And then in graduate school, I I remained a Republican, but I was sort of an East Coast Republican. I supported Rockefeller. No, you did not. I did. In 1964, I supported Rockefeller against Goldwater. And I was very happy to discover that James Burnham made exactly the same decision. Really? I would never have guessed. You would never have guessed, but I was. I was a liberal Republican. Uh, I also wouldn't have guessed about James Burnham either. Oh, he was. He was. He was. I wrote an article for a uh, for an anthology that came out. Uh, what is it? Roman and Littlefield, whatever. Uh, it was on James Burnham, in which I tried to explain why he was a Rockefeller Republican in 1964, despite the fact that he was, you know, in terms of his worldview, on the very, very far right. And uh, he he thought that it seems that he thought that Rockefeller would be the only Republican 
who would be able to win since he thought the country uh, had, was moving toward the left and he was probably right, and that the Republicans would be more able to prosecute the Cold War, which was, of course, the big issue for Burnham at the time. I, I supported Rockefeller or, or Scranton because I thought they were part of the Eastern Wasp establishment who I suppose were predestined by God to govern America. <laughs> it was sort of the proper ruling class for the country, you see. Uh, so, you know, since Rockefeller, I, I thought Rockefeller and, and some, a few of the liberal Republicans, East Coast Republicans like Clifford Case in New Jersey uh, and you, Scott, in Pennsylvania, were, you know, wasp patricians, they had a right to govern. Whereas Goldwater came from, you know, some strange part of the country, uh, in which people were, were Cold War fanatics and so forth. So I, I, I was, in fact, a Rockefeller Republican in 64. Whereas now, the fact that somebody comes from the East Coast establishment is pretty much reason enough for you to oppose that person. Exactly, exactly. Uh, my perception of the East Coast has changed radically, you know, in the intervening 50 years or more. See, I knew there was a story to tell here. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so... Well, when you went off to Yale, um, no, well, hold on a minute. That was your PhD. Where'd you go undergrad? I went to Yeshiva University. I was given a scholarship, uh, and my parents, being very, very thrifty German Jews, decided that I should attend the school because it would be free. My brother went to Cornell, which cost you know a, a heap of money. So I went to Yeshiva University for four years, which I did not enjoy myself very much. I didn't, I didn't like the other students. Although I did have some very good professors, you know, who got me interested in the study of European history. Why were you a conservative Republican, by the way? Was it your influence of your parents? Um, my mother was a Republican, and uh, I hated the Democrats because they were all Irish machine politicians. So I have to say, in retrospect, I'd be delighted to have those Irish machine politicians yeah, back, I and I would vote for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would stuff the ballot box for them. But at the time, <laughs> I, I thought they were sort of lower class types, you know. Uh, and uh, where's, where's all the the local? I, I can't say I was a conservative Republican since it was, you know, sort of the local wasp patricians who were Republicans. And they were people that I, I sort of looked up to at the time. And they tended, and also German Jews tended to be Republicans. So, uh, although sort of liberal, sort of like Kissinger and his they were sort of liberal East Coast Republicans. Uh, I can't say I was really conservative. I did have misgivings about Franklin Roosevelt, but mostly because he was a Democrat. I didn't know very much else about the guy. Oh, okay. All right. So there's still <laughs> plenty of education of Paul Godfrey to go on. Yes, there was a lot of education that would follow uh, or disillusionment. So did you major in history as an undergraduate? I, I took mostly languages. I took uh, four or five different languages. Uh, I think I was sort of a history minor, but I took French, German, uh, Latin, a few other things. And then you wound up getting into Yale for history. What did you do your dissertation on? Um, I did my dissertation on conservative romanticism uh, in Germany. I became sort of interested in people like that and uh, more specifically on Catholic romanticism. Uh, because most of the most of the uh, of the German Romantic movement was Catholic, sort of Restorationist Catholic, and uh, my book came out as something like the Romantic Experience in Bavaria, published by Fordham University Press. Uh, Murray Murray thought that you know my my ideology or my worldview was sort of based on the Romantic Experience in Bavaria. He wasn't quite sure what that is, 
And when he met me, he discovered that this was just a dissertation that I'd written. You know, I went out to other subjects afterwards. I want to just make sure everybody knows we're talking about Murray Rothbard for any of you newbies, the the uh, right, Mr. Libertarian right. at the time. <laughs> so I guess the other thing I want to know, because we both went to similar institutions for our graduate study, what was the climate at Yale like? I'm sorry, I don't mean to date you, but can you maybe situate us as to when this was? I, I don't mind being dated. I mean, you know, by now I'm ancient, but, but, but back sort of like in the mid-1960s, most of my professors today would qualify as neoconservatives. They were cold, they were just, you know, mostly cold war liberals, although not particularly, generally not as anti-communist as they were anti-fascist. The, 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 my study of German history was sort of dominated by sort of, you know, anti-German, German refugees uh, who accepted the Fisher thesis about World War One that it was a war entirely planned and launched by the, the Germans because they, unlike the British, they did not have democratic values at the time. I thought it was rather fishy. Uh, the, um, the professor whom I enjoyed the most by far was Herbert Marcuse, and he was sort of an out-and-out communist sympathizer. Yeah, now this uh, is fascinating. I've always wanted to know yeah. your opinions on him because I, I, you know, I think I have a pretty conventional right-of-center assessment of him, mm-hmm. and maybe you have something that where you find some value in him that I don't see. But, but I really, really would like to know your. Uh, I mean, you must have had. Did you have personal interactions with him? Yes, I, I, I think in comparison to. People I've, you know, I've met in Conservatism Incorporated, you know, let alone in the entire uh, academic left. He was a very tolerant person. You know, he was quite willing to entertain disagreement. And, you know, as, as I indicate in my autobiography encounters, uh, once he asked someone in class to defend the side of the anti-socialist in the French revolutions of 1848, and I defended the bourgeoisie against the working class revolt and argued furiously against the working, the working, so-called working class revolution. They didn't really have many working class, mostly revolutionary agitators, you know, but the, uh, from the more educated classes. But I, I did argue furiously on the side of the, um, the counter-revolution. And he argued with me and then he thanked me, you know, he said, I, you defended your position valorously. And he gave me an outstanding grade for that class. Now, I could not imagine this happening uh, in the classes of, of my Cold War liberal professors or, you know, anybody else that I had or these uh, very intolerant anti-German Germans. Uh, so, you know, he, stu- he stood out um, uh, as a tolerant man. He also knew a great deal about German idealist philosophy, which he conveyed to me. I read his work, and I read other works in German that he recommended. So I, I found my uh, my contacts with him extremely fruitful. And I remember him as being a relatively pleasant man. He did go off the deep end later on when he went out to California, you know, and taught in San Diego and influenced people like Angela Davis. But when I knew him, he was not uh, uh, he was not he was not quite uh, as deranged as he later became. And in fact, he was a pretty he was, he was a nice person. He was a very good professor and taught me a great deal. I, in my experience, I made a lot of good friends as an undergraduate. But in graduate school, at least in my program, I could be friendly to these people. But I didn't have anything in common with them and I didn't particularly enjoy their company. I had to make my friends outside my mm-hmm, academic mm-hmm. circle. What were the other students like at Yale? Well, most of the st- 
Republicans were ideologically leftist social snobs, you know, and uh, they would have very little to do with me because uh, I was a Republican, you know, and they were all left-wing Democrats with sympathy for the communists or the Soviets, or they were anti, they were certainly anti-capitalist, but there was a small circle of very right-wing students uh, with whom I would hang out. Uh, one of them was a Hungarian who I lost contact with named uh, Laszlo Bartoszy, who's, I think, whose who's, uh, uncle was shot after the war by the communists as some kind of right-wing collaborator of the German regime or something like that. Uh, another person you may know is Bill Marshner, whom I've totally lost contact with. He became Catholic, a very conservative Catholic, and his wife, Connie, was involved in all kinds of anti-abortion activities. I don't think I ever met him, but I think it was he at Christendom College? Uh, he was for a while, yes. He may still be there. So I know I who know. he is, but we've never met. Right, right. But but there were about 10 or 15 students, uh, uh, graduate students, with whom I, I was friendly. Uh, very few of them were in history. They, they, they tended to be in things like ancient Near Eastern studies or classics. Um, but, you know, gen generally, I did not enjoy the company of other people in the history department. Uh, although I found that, that once you got out of the field of modern European history, if you studied medieval or ancient history, your, your colleagues, you know, the, my, my colleagues seemed much more normal, you know, and they were less pretentious. One, one, of, the, one of the things that I, that I noticed when I was in graduate school was, uh, you know, students walking around carrying what was then the the newly created New York Review of Books, you know, and if you were seen holding the New York Review of Books, and if you mentioned one of its contributors by his, by his or her first name, you know, that, uh, that won you, uh, I suppose, merit or something uh, in, in the minds of, you know, your fellow students. Uh, so you see these people walking around, or if you quoted Le Monde, you know, which was sort of typically pro-Soviet, you know, in its, uh, its editorial policy. So, you know, the, 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 those, or, or, or if you did things like um, deplore the fact that Germans could not be as good as members of the English Labor Party, or Americans couldn't be as good as members of the English Labor Party. So uh, there, there were these people were you know, sort of had vapors, uh, uh, were extremely pretentious, and, you know, invariably held these... Uh, these silly leftist views, which I didn't share. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, what would be some examples here, especially given that today it's 2019, maybe these seem really conservative now. Well, that's true. No, no, I, I mean, by the current standards, uh, these people who are at the very least Nazis or something, I mean, they, uh, you know, I don't remember anyone ever coming out in favor of gay marriage. They simply considered uh, homosexuals to be, uh, to be deviants. Another another thing which, you know, I, I, th I think was sort of interesting was that although they were, of course, all against the Vietnam War, which meant they actually sided with the Viet Cong, uh, when you got them on other questions, you know, like the civil rights uh, question, um, they, you know, of course, they favored the civil rights movement and this sort of thing, but um, they did not have a particularly exalted view of black culture uh, or black social life. I mean, they thought that like the Germans, they'd have to be reeducated, you see. I mean, it was only later, maybe, you know, seven, eight years later that you would hear the uh, people praise, you know, the black underclass and their their marvelous culture and so forth. This was not a characteristic view of my leftist fellow students when I was in graduate school. Yeah. Now, that, that comes as a surprise for a lot of people. They don't realize that, as we've said on this show, the old left 
was culturally fairly bourgeois, as much as they denounced uh, the bourgeoisie for its economic exploitation. They dressed like the bourgeoisie. <laughs> they acted like the bourgeoisie. They spoke that way. You know, they, they had haircuts that looked like, you know, they, that's how they were. They, they were also extremely anti-homosexual. Uh, yeah, they, nobody they, knows this. Absolutely. Nobody well, is aware I mean, of this. They, the, the Almost of, nobody. Yeah, they keep this quiet. But I remember my, uh, my late friend, Will Herber, who had been a member of the Communist Party at one time, uh, said that anybody who was thought to be a homosexual was kicked out of the party at once. You know, they'd know, and of course we know that in communist countries, homosexuals are put in concentration camps, as, you know, as was done by, uh, by Barack Obama's friend, uh, Fidel Castro. Yeah, that one's a little bit of an awkward... Uh... Well, I, I, I'm doing this book on anti-fascism, which Cornell University Press is bringing out, and it is remarkable, either the ignorance or amnesia of the current intersectional left, which is, of course, anti-fascist, it, it continues to glorify communist regimes, although communist regimes were far more intolerant of these uh, strange lifestyles than the United States was, uh, you know, up until 20 years ago. Or I think their view was that homosexuality was a bourgeois deviation of yes. some kind. Yes, exactly. That was their view. And somehow that's overlookable for these mm-hmm. people. They can overlook, they can overlook it from the commies. Not from anybody else. They can overlook it there. All right, so... From their perspective, the left is, you know, the the, the French expression, uh, la gauche fait bloc, that it's sort of a unified bloc, the entire left. I think it was Clemenceau who once said that. And and this is the way... They they do not see any difference between the left as it exists now and the left the way it existed, I don't know, in the Soviet Union. Maybe the Soviet Union was a little different, or Castro's Cuba... The left was always good. It always, you know, it always held the vast, supposedly held the values that it holds right now. Yeah. Well, now I'm curious about the values of a certain Paul Gottfried, because you get out of Yale with a PhD. Mm-hmm. Are you still a Rockefeller Republican? Um, no, I think by then I had changed. Uh, I became a Nixon Republican oh my gosh. <laughs> in 1968. <laughs> I thought I had things to apologize for. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, it took me a long time you know, to move on. I, I was sort of ideologically, I thought I saw myself as being on the right. But, uh, you know, I, I thought you needed a kind of moderate Republican in office and uh, became actually enthusiastic about Richard Nixon during, you know, the presidential campaign in which he announced that Nixon is the one. You know, in 1968. At what point did you meet Pat Buchanan? Was that much later? Yeah, I I did not meet Pat until the 1980s. Okay, because obviously we all know about his work with Nixon. Right, right. And of course, you have to remember Buchanan was, you know, just a a kind of, he was never a conventional speechwriter, but he worked for conventional Republicans for most of his career. Yes, he did. And but, but man, could he write a speech? I remember reading, like he would write a speech for Spiro Agnew. And Agnew would just be delighted, just absolutely in his element. You know, right. Whereas if he's working for Nixon, he realizes, okay, there are certain things Nixon just won't say. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Agnew, he'll say whatever you put in front of him. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. About the nadering nabobs of negativism. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. So what, what was it that made you say, you know what, to heck with the whole establishment, to heck with the moderate Republicans, I, I'm making a big change here. Okay, uh, I, in 1980, I was an alternate delegate for Ronald Reagan from Illinois, and was you know very much of a kind of Reagan Republican. And in fact, my name was affixed to a declaration of support for Reagan put out by the Heritage Foundation. 
what, what happened was that I encountered the neoconservatives and I saw how easily they took over the conservative movement and the Republican Party. I mean, they, uh, and I, I think what happened to Mel Bradford in February of 1981 turned me around politically. Uh, and then, of course, things that subsequently happened did, which was you know, things that the neoconservatives did, sort of imposing their will on the conservative movement. And also, uh, I was struck by the extent to which Reagan was taken in by neoconservatives and their rhetoric about global democracy. And this became um, particularly the case after I moved to Washington in 1986. And I was the editor of the World and I magazine. Uh, I, I remember that magazine. Actually, I actually, yeah. Right, I was passionately anti-neocon by then. Okay, so so you observed the. I mean, the neocons started to become a phenomenon. I guess really, uh, you could say in the late sixties, but really in the seventies they came right. of their own. Right. Did you right. observe them come? I mean, was there a time at which you just thought of them as being just fellow travelers? No, yours? no, I never liked them. And in 1974, I published a piece in Modern Age on the neoconservatives that was extremely critical. Oh, I want to find that and link to it. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it's available online somewhere. If you want. But it was it was written quite early. But, but they're they're I'm sort of mildly critical. You know, I I don't really consider them as being on the right or conservatives. But uh, you know, they were useful in the struggle against communism. <laughs> I, I, that was my position at the time, but you know, I was hoping they would never allow be allowed to gain the upper hand, either in the Republican Party or the conservative movement. Uh, but certainly in the 1980s, I think I I, I turned, uh, at least in my own politics, decisively toward the right, even the far right. And it was largely a reaction to what the neoconservatives did to the conservative movement, and then later to me. Okay, well, for, let's let's do the first things first. What precisely did the neocons do to the conservative movement? Well, I mean, on, on any number of issues, they pushed it toward the left. And even, even their, their anti-communism was leftist anti-communism. They were simply, you know, the part of the left that rejected the Communist Party because it was not, uh, you know, true to its ideals or later because it did not support the Zionist objectives of the neoconservatives. And, uh, you know, they, they, they also fought against communism in the name of some other leftist ideology like global democracy, their notion of human rights. Uh, they, they, they really were leftist revolutionaries who just, you know, didn't happen to like the communists. Uh, that's, I think, so, that's why Murray and Rothbard and I used to joke about how the Mensheviks, you know, are now fighting the Bolsheviks because we really did see them as a force of the left. And they, and they took over completely. The, the other group that seemed to be closely allied to them which I, I thought were at least equally obnoxious, were the West Coast Straussians. The Straussians generally, particularly the West Coast Straussians, who pushed this idea of, you know, conservatism predicated on the idea of universal equality. So, you know, they, they, they bothered me. But in terms of actually controlling political institutions, I thought the neoconservatives were much more dangerous because they were much more expansionist, much more interventionist than the, than the Straussians, the West Coast Straussians. But I, I saw both of these people becoming very powerful in the 1980s. And if you read my book, The Search for Historical Meaning, particularly the last chapter, it is a warning against them, you know, and allowing them to gain any more influence either in the Republican Party or over the American right. Ah, okay. So now I want to talk about what I, I know happened, but I don't know the details. When you say 
what the neoconservatives did to me. What did they do to you? What did they think that was wrong with Paul Gottfried, and how did they try to make your life difficult? Yeah, this is very curious because uh, I never took an unlike Murray Rothbard or Lou Rockwell, I never took an anti-Israeli position. But they assumed that I was against Israel because I didn't agree with them on other things. Like I was critical of the New Deal. I was critical of the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s. I was critical of the Immigration Act, which they supported. And I did not think the Germans were entirely to blame for the outbreak of World War I. Believe it or not, I mean, it's a big issue for them. You know, uh, they hated the Germans because of the Nazis, and they would read you know, German Nazism all the way back into the German past. And I thought the stuff that they wrote on World War I and the Franco-Prussian War was nonsense. Uh, and I, you know, I wrote it as somebody, my family did fight uh, for, for the Austrians in the war. But, you know, the, the reality is I think the war was an absolute tragedy. I thought the United States could have done a great deal perhaps to end that war in Europe by trying to, you know, act as an honest broker. So I disagreed with them on that. I always joke that I disagreed with them on, on the Peloponnesian War because I think the, the Athenians were much more to blame than the Spartans for stopping that war. But that, that, what they do is they sort of read back their prejudices into everything in history. And I think the fact that I was very contemptuous of their attempt to filter the past through their own experience, uh, their own sort of bizarre experiences that made me very, very suspect. But they, uh, among other things, they went after me for a graduate professorship in classics and politics at Catholic University in 1987. And they they called up the administration, they attacked me, and the charge that they made was that I was not quite safe on Israel, which I thought was remarkable, A, because I had never written anything against Israel, and B, because even if I were anti-Israeli, that would not keep me from teaching Polybius and Xenophon and Aristotle, right? without bringing in my anti-Zionism, if I were an anti-Zionist. But they, they seem to have terrified the Catholic administration of Catholic University, which withdrew an offer that had already given to me. They, they had second thoughts. I could have sued them, which I didn't do. Uh, it would have been you know, a long legal hassle. But then afterwards, I noticed the neoconservatives would continue. They would write to universities not to publish my books. Uh, they intervened uh, uh, university presses. They also intervened at other universities to keep me out of jobs. And, you know, they, they raised some nasty things about me to, to each other. Uh, it, 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 once they went after you, whatever their reasons, you know, to keep you from a job, it was the same thing to Mel Bradford in 1981. Once they went after you, what they would do is keep going after you in order to justify, you know, their initial decision to destroy you. Uh, they behaved exactly like the Communist Party. You know, they, uh, Will Herberg used to describe how the Communist Party USA would act, you know, get with one side to go. They act the same way. They were the same sorts of people. Uh, and these were the ones who took over the conservative movement, were able, to, you know, to fill positions with their own people. They took over philanthropic organizations. And the, the effect of seeing them take the power and seeing magazines like National Review fall to them, I think, had the... Uh, a very sobering effect on me, and definitely uh, helped turn me toward the right, you know, uh, to, toward, I suppose, what they would consider the very far right. Uh, you know, the other day I was writing a little something about the Southern Poverty Law Center, mm-hmm. and in recent years, like really just the past year or two, 
you see more and more regular conservatives looking at this thing and saying, you know, maybe it isn't just a watchdog group for the Ku Klux Klan. You know, maybe there is something more sinister going on. Whereas up until, I mean, even they went after the Family Research Council, that still wasn't right. enough for some conservatives to wake right. up to what was right. going on because the conservative movement <laughs> – was just like the Southern Poverty Law Center. They would they would destroy you. They would the very first thing anybody said about you. They wouldn't bother to look at the details. You were out. I mean, they were all too happy to enforce the dictates of the Southern Poverty Law Center. But unless, now, yeah, unless one of their own got hit. I mean, if they attacked David French or David Horowitz or someone, they would. Uh, you know, they'd fight back and they'd hire lawyers. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But yeah. then it would just be this weird aberration from this otherwise noble organization. Whereas right. now, even a fairly mainstream libertarian like John Stossel, I saw him linking to an absolute takedown of the SPLC. So that kind of makes me feel a little bit better. But it's just when you're describing how they act, I thought, yeah, no wonder they, they had no problem enforcing the SPLC's decrees about people. You know, mm-hmm. That's how they act. That's how they mm-hmm. act toward people. So, all right, so you've got that, that hostility coming from the neocons. Now we're getting through to the end of the 80s into the early 90s. And this is where, not like the the story culminates with Woods. However, this is where I do enter the picture because I'm old enough to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it was in 1993, I think, that I first met you because I was at the John Randolph Club meeting. Right. Because I was interested in that. I was interested in Rothbard and I was interested in the people at Chronicles. I liked both. And so I thought I would attend this thing. Mm-hmm. So can you maybe say something about that? Because that was a moment where after the Cold War, it looked like there are people who have been at odds with each other because of foreign policy who have so much else in common that maybe it might be worth uh, having a discussion. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that was maybe the high, the last high point of the American conservative movement. The attempted fusion, uh, well, it wasn't a fusion, but the uh, a coalition. Yeah, of, and then it's, Woods of, comes onto the scene, and it's all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was all downhill uh, because you know the. Uh, I suppose we were in the same position as the Japanese when they declared war against Russia, when they attacked Russia in the Far East. Uh, that they could win one or two battles, but as soon as the Russian army was going to get there, the Japanese would have been wiped out. So it was a good thing they got the uh, treaty at Portsmouth in 1905. We we really were not the equals of the neoconservatives in terms of firepower, resources, money, and good relations with the mainstream liberal media, which they certainly enjoyed far more than we did. Right, but uh, we did have we we could run uh, Buchanan as president. We could take advantage of his early successes, and we did have the Mises Institute, and we had the, we had the Rockford Institute, and a few other institutions that were leaning in our direction, and probably would have declared support for us uh, if we had more firepower, and you know, were able to put up more of a fight once Buchanan went down. But once Buchanan went down, uh, I, I said, well, the alliance fell apart for other reasons that perhaps we shouldn't go into right now. But but it, it was certainly weakened, I think, as a result of uh, Buchanan's withdrawal from the race in 1992, and the, you know the fact that we were not able uh, to pull in more. It was sort of uh, the other historical analogy is Hannibal. You know, after he defeats the Romans uh, in some significant battles, like uh, like Cannae, uh, uh, he's like roaming around in Italy, but the Latin Confederation would not give him any support, <laughs> and no. Uh, uh, I think it was I think only one town did uh, Aquila, and they got wiped out by the Romans later. We weren't able to pull loose any members of the conservative coalition, 
who by then were taking their orders from the neoconservatives. And I think that probably, uh, you know, was the death knell for our side. So now, and then the the Randolph Club eventually split apart. So the, I mean, there are individual libertarians and individual paleos who have relationships, but the, institutionally there's been that, there's been a kind of an alienation. But I don't know, I think maybe that's slightly coming to an end. But in this day and age with the internet, it, these alliances are not really so important. It used to be that, well, there aren't that many magazines out there, so we have to have an alliance with this group because they have right. a magazine. Maybe they'll publish our articles. That's not so important anymore that you have this formal relationship. But now today, um, I know it's pretty grim. So I hate to ask Paul Gottfried for good news. You know, <laughs> I hate to put uh, you in that position. I, I, I actually have very good news, but I'm not free to divulge it. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I actually know what that bit of news is, but right, I will right. divulge it when the time is right. You can divulge when, when, when the time is right, but, uh, but I think we may be getting a lot more firepower on our side. Uh, okay. You know, and this is why in my... Uh, uh, last years on this planet, I have, you know, undertaken labor basically, basically to bring something like the old alliance back into existence. And, you know, I, I think the uh, conservatism incorporated uh, has probably reached its zenith, sort of its media zenith. They have television stations, they run Fox News, all kinds of other things. But I think there's an entire young gener- younger generation that they don't reach. Uh, because yeah. most of the people watching Fox News are in their 60s and 70s. Yeah, most that's of the people a problem. reading National Review are in their 60s and 70s. Uh, I think you've got a much younger crowd uh, who come to Mises Institute events, right? And uh, there are other conservative outlets that, uh, that are able to appeal to the young much more effectively than Conservatism Incorporated, which is not doing, a, uh, you know, much to our pleasure, is not doing a very good job yes, right no, now. Indeed, indeed. And I will say, by the way, that the cruise that Bob Murphy and I have hosted for the past uh, four years mm-hmm. attracts a much younger clientele, let's say, than the National Review cruises. And we know right. that, not because I've been on one of those, uh, heaven help me, but rather because the same company does our cruise, that uh, do the National Review cruise, and they tell us. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, it's all silvery-haired people on those cruises. Now, you know, Paul, <laughs> nothing against those silvery-haired people. But, you know, we need the younger folks. And you think, well, the, how can they afford to go on a cruise? But we have a lot of young professionals mm-hmm. who come on our cruise who would never in a million years go on a National Review cruise. Yeah, I, I believe that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say they're, they're entirely a spent force, but it seems to me that uh, they're, have, they're having a difficulty – you know, reaching people. If you took a, people who read National Review continue to read it because they've been reading it for years. People who watch Fox News are very often retired people who are sitting at home. They're mostly that. So that there is a, uh, a younger age group who are just waiting, you know, to be reached out to. And I think this is, this is where, 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 the, where our hope is. You know, it's, it's with the younger people uh, who are not very interested, you know, in listening to another commentary by Sean... Hannity or by Laura Ingram or watching Dinesh D'Souza come on and tell you that, uh, you know, the Democratic Party is the party of slavery or something like that. These people are so clueless. so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, they're so clueless and tone deaf. It's, right? it's, it's crazy. I, I actually liked, I very much liked your book, um, which I guess you – did you write it with Tom Fleming, the book on the conservative movement? I liked that book. That taught me a lot when I was young. And the one that came out in 1986 in which we coined the term paleoconservative. Okay. Well, I'm going to write yeah. that down. 
Right. As, I've, uh, as a as a book on the show notes page. Show notes page tomwoods.com slash fourteen ninety nine. I almost had you on the nice round number fifteen hundred, but I couldn't quite make that work. Mm-hmm. The conservative movement. Yeah, that definitely will help fill in a lot of the blanks for for people as to what happened and who the people were and the institutions and all that. It's pretty well documented in there. The, the, right, book, well, is, the, the, the book doesn't seem antiquated. I'm just asking that as a question. I mean, it was published in 1986. Well, I'm a bit antiquated because I read it like around 1986. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but I just remember at the time thinking, all right, this explains a lot to me. Actually, I actually no, I take that back. It was the early 90s when I was rethinking. I was going through my own Gottfried moment. I was right. rethinking being a Bush <laughs> Republican, mm-hmm. and I wanted to know what the alternatives were. And that's when I discovered Chronicles magazine, and so I saw that there was an alter- there was a, a non-interventionist alternative. I thought, well, what is right. this? Aren't, right. they, aren't these people unpatriotic or something? Mm-hmm. So I went through that whole thing, and your book was actually very helpful uh, to me at that oh, time. So you. if it's good mm-hmm. enough for Woods, it's good enough for everybody else out there right. is, is my view. So I'm going to re- uh, refer people there. And then when your good news is is revealed, uh, I'll be the first one shouting it from the rooftop. So everybody check out tomwoods.com slash 1499. And as always, Paul, we thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. All right, folks, that's today's episode. I want to tell anybody who has a website waiting to be promoted by me that uh, I'll get to those uh, coming up pretty soon. I'll certainly be doing them during Dave Smith week next week, which we are all looking forward to. And uh, let's see, what do I want to tell you to do uh, this time? Yeah, you know, that Michael Malice character, I have gone and watched him do YouTube Live quite a few times, and he is a master of it. And he uses that to engage with his audience, even build his audience, and he's able to monetize that. You should watch how he does that. He's very good at it. And that, therefore, is a tool that you should think about using. And Malice just shows you how to do it. You should just go to one of his live streams and watch how he does it. And as I say, he actually monetizes it successfully. But how do you set it up and what do you do and how do you promote your live stream and all that? I've prepared a, a nice video series for you that walks you through all the steps. Cost you nothing, but will help you. I'm telling you, this will help you get a nice uh, jump on it and not get bogged down. So you can find that over at tomwoods.com slash YouTube live. That's tomwoods.com slash YouTube live for that free video series. If like me, you are somebody who has or wants to build an audience and wants to find a, a nice way to do that and cultivate that audience and maybe even make a couple of smackers on the side, that's a great way to do it. So tomwoods.com slash YouTube live is your free guide to how to do that. And I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.